Our mindset is one of the biggest determiners of our success and it's perhaps the biggest determiner of whether or not we achieve our dreams and ambitions. I'm Sarah Moore and this is Ambition Unleashed. In each episode of this podcast, we're going to explore a different mindset shift to consider making if you want to identify and achieve your biggest, boldest, most breakthrough ambitions. We'll also hear from thought leaders who are experts in or from extraordinary individuals who have lived experience of making this shift in their life, leadership or work. Together, we'll explore a conventional way we as humans find ourselves thinking and introduce and invite you to think in a more unconventional way, what we call breakthrough thinking. Sharing some of the insights we've had over the many years we've been coaching and consulting with some of the world's most extraordinary leaders at many of the world's biggest companies. We'll give you the fundamental aha moments you need to make you more innovative, more transformational and more capable of delivering breakthroughs and ultimately smash any ceilings that only the way in which we think can put in our way. How often do you say to yourself that things have gone well considering the circumstances? In this episode of Ambition Unleashed, we are exploring how when we find ourselves feeling powerless, like the world is against us, how we can shift our attention from being a victim and choose agency instead. Blaming circumstances, the competition, the people around you, the weather or just bad luck are all indications that a victim mindset is lurking. Now, victim is a bold word. We are not talking about victims of crime or abuse or health conditions. These are true victims with whom we must stand and support. The leader's victim mindset is the resignation of agency. It is a trap that is all too easy to fall into, but agency is a choice, and we will discuss how we can get present to that choice. This is the mindset that lurks underneath our human condition which can be so easily triggered, which when we look more closely and we are able to separate ourselves from it, is the avoidance of responsibility and the casting of blame and judgment and excuses on others. But we don't always realise we're doing it. We don't notice when we've put ourselves in victim. We have justified it in our minds unconsciously, how right we are, how wrong, mistaken, bad, lazy, insert judgment word here, the other or others are. We stop seeing any way forward for action that we can take. This is an invitation to a reorientation to radical responsibility as the only powerful place to stand to give you energy and future focus. And actually, it's not that we can prevent ourselves from falling back into this, but the speed at which we can catch ourselves. A wise person once told me, when I was feeling at the effect of what I felt were negative circumstances all around me, Go and tell the stars. Now shout all your frustrations, what should have been, whose fault it is, if only we'd done things this way or that way, and see what difference it makes. It doesn't make any difference, except, of course, to make ourselves feel better. The choice of agency isn't always the easiest and could take time to emerge. Whilst we get over the initial anger, disappointment, that feeling of resignation and accept the situation happening right at this moment, agency is ultimately choosing to be responsible when we feel it is not our responsibility, choosing the outcome and ambition over the doubts about others' motives and capabilities. If I was to take 100% responsibility for the success of the outcome, 
I think I would best describe agency as the speed I can make the decision to get back onto my mission, seeing myself the creator of ambition at all times. I'm going to stop here and let my guest of this podcast episode talk more eloquently about what being an agent means. Joe Corbishley is an improvement coach, TEDx speaker and author who is talking today about a very personal set of circumstances around a relationship breakdown, then once finding her soulmate, finding out she was unable to have children. She is now the founder of a business that helps organisations expand through exploring who you really are and embracing what you offer the world and are great at. I think if I go back to somewhere around 2008, where it all started, um, I came home one Friday night to find my husband, who in no uncertain terms told me that my marriage was over and that he um, didn't want to be with me anymore. And at 35 and quite a career person that was a quite a shock to my system to be honest with you and, and at that point we didn't have any family so I found myself literally at 35 alone abandoned and very much alienated because literally Sarah at that point my husband and his family basically cut off all contact to me and that was an incredibly difficult mm-hmm. time for me because Coming from the northeast, I came from a very close knit family, and I was the first person in my family to get divorced, which mm. was not an easy situation to find myself in. To be honest with you, um, a lot of shame was around that. At that point, I then took the decision, and probably what a lot of people do when they, I think, when you experience kind of trauma or challenge in your life, is you tend to focus on something else. So I continued to focus on my career. And I spent three years in America working, working very hard. And then at a point in about 2011, I decided that I wanted to meet someone else. So in 2011, I met my soulmate, who is my husband now, my second husband, and everything was fantastic. I was really lucky to have two stepchildren. Um, But within a year of us kind of coming together, Sarah, my husband and I realised that we wanted to have children of our own. At that point, I was 40, fit. I thought pretty fabulous, to be honest with you, because, you know, I felt fantastic, absolutely brilliant. Unfortunately, found out that just before my 40th birthday that I wouldn't be able to have children. Um, So we tried to have children for a couple of years and then realised that naturally it wasn't going to happen. We're then told at that point we needed to have some specialist um, support. So we went through a couple of rounds of, of IVF treatment which uh, unfortunately um, proved to be um, unsuccessful. So that was probably the turning point, I think, in my life with my first husband. It it had never, we'd never said that we weren't going to have children, but we'd never said that we were going to have children. But then when you meet someone, when you meet your soulmate and you decide to have children um, and then you try to have children and that doesn't then happen, it's... It, it for me it was it was unbelievably difficult. Not being able to actually have Stephen's child made me really question who I was. It was a really it was an incredibly difficult time in my life. It, it, that was probably at the point where for me I was certainly at my lowest in terms of how I felt about myself. I remember sat in the fertility clinic at, at the QE Hospital right in the northeast, and I remember sat 
um, mm. just waiting to go in to see my consultant, Mr. Aid. And when we went in and Mr. Aid had said, mm. you know, the reality, Joe, is unfortunately um, you're not, you know, we're not going to be able to go through another round of IVF treatment. You're not going to be successful in having children. That was a massive mm. deal for me because that outcome had been chosen for me and I, I wasn't able to um, make the decision. The decision was made for me. It was a massive thing for me because coming back to my background, um, my father, when I was young, always used to say to me, Joe, if you work hard enough, you'll get what you want in life. And I remember... Mm sitting there thinking um well like I've worked hard at this and yet I, I can't quite have what I want in my life and I think that was mm -hmm. the first time where I realized that the reality is is that in life right life is not fair you know we want it to be we want mm. we want it to be successful but the reality is is that life is not fair and in some yeah. circumstances, we can't always get what we want. And then I suppose that mm -hmm. begs the question is, so what happens when we can't get what we want in our lives? Mm -hmm. That for me was very much the point where I think I became in essence a victim at that point. Mm -hmm. We sometimes hear people say you're a victim by circumstance or a victim of circumstance. And the reality, right, is that I don't like to, to refer to it as that because to be fair, right, there are many, many women at the age of 40 who successfully go on to have children without IVF treatment. Likewise, there are many other mm. women who, at the age of 40, go on mm. to have IVF treatment and to come out of that with a baby. So it's not necessarily, we don't become victims of circumstance, right? We become victims of the conditions that surround a circumstance. And in some ways, that adds to the unfairness that you feel. You know, it's not just a circumstance, it's the chance. I, I completely understand, yeah. It is. And so for me, you know, at the age of 40, right, I'd got to a point physically where I literally had no more eggs or very few eggs. And that was the problem that I had. So I had a condition called low ovarian reserve, which meant that the, the amount of eggs that I could produce and then get fertilized was becoming less and less. So it was a combination of low ovarian reserve and my age, probably as well, if I'm honest, Sarah, at the time, at that particular time, my mother, who'd had lung cancer, I was nursing her. So it was almost, you know, it was a, a, a set of circumstances, right, that were just beyond my control in some sense, but unfortunately resulted in this situation where, at the age of 40, I found myself infertile and not being able to have the one mm. thing that I believed, right, was the most important thing to me in my life. And I remember having a conversation with my twin sister at the time who couldn't comprehend why it was so important for me. You know, she was like, you've had a successful career. You've done a lot in your life, Joe. So what is it that's so important at the age of 40 to have a baby? Why can't you kind of move past that? You know, why can't you just accept? Mm. And I think what it made me do was it made me really think at that point, I'd put so much attachment on and value on that in order to have a successful life with Stephen, right, I needed to have a baby. So if I took that away, yeah. then Sarah, to a certain extent, it meant that my life was meaningless and valueless. And I wasn't, I wasn't valuable. I think 
victims um, become victims because they attach meaning to things. You know, most of us can go through a set of circumstances, right? But it's the meaning that we attach to those circumstances that will dictate whether we become a victim or not. You can either choose to kind of go, I'm not going to let it affect me and I'm going to move on. Or actually, um, I'm going to continually allow it to define me. And, And for a certain extent, as I went through that particularly painful period, I believed that not being able to have a child defined me as a woman, right, as a woman. And that affected my behaviour. I'm not a shy person, but it fundamentally affected the way that I was. So I stopped going out. I found it difficult to be in rooms with other women who had children. I found that incredibly difficult Mm. for a long period because Mm. they had something that I wanted that I couldn't have. And I think that was where almost some of the awareness came for me around recognising actually that, that I was, it was how I was perceiving the situation. At the end of the day, these women had done nothing wrong, they just had a child. But for me, it was, it was everything that I couldn't have. You know, it's, God, what's really hitting me and resonating is it's, it's almost irrelevant whether you wanted a baby or not, you know, in terms of the reaction and, and clearly you did. Um, but it's the fact that it's taken away from you. Yeah, that decision. And that then, you know, is, is sets a much deeper reaction to the expectation we all swim through life, expecting certain things not to be a problem. It, it, yeah. And you've hit the nail on the head there. And I think when you're a victim, right, it's, it's because you've lost something. If someone is subject to crime, to a certain extent, it's not always about the actual property, right? It's in some sense, it's about the loss of freedom, the loss of security. So for me, I felt as if I'd lost something. What I didn't realise, and I realise now, and I think that's probably one of the key insights I would say about that victim to agent mentality is, is um, I didn't even acknowledge that I was actually going through the grieving process because that's what loss is about when we lose something whether it's property whether it's confidence whether it's your whole identity because at that point you know at the age of 40 right Sarah I didn't know who I was I remember having these conversations that were like so what's Joe Corbusier going to do now now that I can't have a baby what is my life going to look like and feel like if I'm honest even to the extent of saying is there a point in having a life if I don't, if I, if, you know, if I can't have what I, what I desperately want? And I've been there. I've been in that really dark place um, where mm. you almost, you know, you can't, you can't see the wood for the trees. You can't see. You're so caught up in what's happened that you can't actually mm. comprehend that there's a future out there without a child. I couldn't comprehend what Joe Corbusier was going to do without having a baby. Who was she going to be? You know, yeah. and, and I mean, mm-hmm. what compounded that even more is, you know, like I remember saying to myself, you know, what kind of woman can't have kids? It's a woman's basic right to have children. What kind of woman can't even have a baby? Um, what yeah. does that make me? Yeah. I was like that for, for quite a while. I was caught between the past for what I couldn't have, the future for what would be, what was what was my future going to be? And and probably the only thing that I could do to keep myself sane was to keep myself in the present, was to take every day as it came. Mm. Because if I didn't, mm. you know, um, I remember my twin sister saying to me, 
at one point we thought we'd lost your door. And that was really hard, mm. that. Mm. Because when you've kind of come through your life and you've been successful, you think you know who you are. And then actually, you don't really know who you are. I sat in that really unhappy period. Because the other thing as well, what I would say to you, Sarah, is what I, I think one of the things I've learned about being a victim, right, about being in that victim mode is, right, it's a really comfortable place to be, right? It's a really comfortable place to be. You could argue mm. it's an addictive place to be because to a certain extent, mm. you get attention. It confirms the unfairness of what life is, yeah? And it's so easy to stay yeah. there, so easy to stay there. You know, always oh, me, life is yeah. so difficult. And I've seen individuals, not just myself, but the other individuals, who were caught in this place where it's really comfortable to play the victim um, because of the attention that we get. It makes us feel good about ourselves. It makes us be able to justify actually what's happened to us to a certain extent. I think one of the things that I realised was I remember just before my mum died, having a conversation with her, and I think this was probably one of the most powerful things that I think anyone else has, has said to me, which was, you know, Joan, you don't have to be a biological mum, right, to be a mum. And to make a difference. And she was like, you've got so much to give, so much love to give, that it would be a crying shame if you did nothing with that. I guess I needed that talking to. I needed that someone to, to say to me, you know, it, you can't just leave it there. You can't just kind of stay in this in this place where you're at. Mm. Um, as a result of that, I then left my job in the northeast and then moved over to Cumbria. And I started in a role as a teacher at a local college. Within three months of that, I'd become director of STEM within the college. So the irony was I'd gone from having no kids and not being able to have kids to having thousands of kids, which was a, quite an interesting turnaround, to be honest. And the key thing around that very much, Sarah, was I took action. I didn't stay where I was at. Mm. I took action. It was difficult, but it was incredibly rewarding. And off the back mm. of that, you know, I was I then was in a position where I then started to be able to affect other young people's lives. And that was incredibly satisfying. I think what I realised coming from victim through to the agent, right, is it wasn't necessarily about the kids, although I thought it was about the kids, dare I say. Um, it was about how I felt about me. And actually, you know, mm. the, the, the gap that I had to fill was finding out who I was and who I was meant to be mm. and being happy with that person, whether they had children or whether they didn't have children. So and then I got to a point where I wanted to move away from the education sector, but to still work with young people. So in 2019, I left the college. And I set up my own business and now I work with um, young people. I've literally yesterday just finished a three-day course um, working with young people down in the South around identity, around leadership skills, helping them to lead their lives, but on their terms and not on anyone else's. We explore things around what are the kind of things that they see themselves doing. There's an element of resilience in there. For me... I've come kind of full circle to not being able to have children of my own to now influencing and helping other people's children. And I'd love to say that that was the end of the story, Sarah, but it's not. Because in 2020, my husband and I made the decision to buy a farm out in the northwest on the Solway. Um, and in the last year, we're, we're just in the process of developing that farm. And the plan will be to 
to bring young people to to West Farm or to help develop them and do leadership courses here. But as part of that transition, we have acquired some goats. And six months ago, I started off with two goats. A few months ago, I had 11. And then in the last four to six weeks, we've now got 28 goats. I have 17 goat kids um, (laughs) as well as, so we've got 28 goats and I have 17 little goat kids. If I look back over kind of my journey, you know, I, I kind of went from 35 being alone, abandoned, to 40 yeah. to being, who am I? I can't have children. What's my life going to look and feel like? And then to 48, 49 coming up, and I have, um, I work ostensibly with young people and developing young people. I'm working more closely now with, you know, more young people. And then on top of that, I do actually now have my own goat kids. I've got my own kids and the goat kids, right? And they're just perfect the way that they are. So it's it feels for me as if I've come full circle and I've got what I wanted in yeah. life. You know, we would talk about victim to agent, right? Um, there's, a, there's a part of me, right, that will never, never fully get over that you know that the fact that I'll never have my own children you don't I don't think you ever get over something like that I think you learn to accept it I think it it, it becomes easier there are days that I'm reminded of that really difficult place and the intense emotion of, of wanting something for me and not being able to have that but you know it would be so easy to go back to that place of, oh, poor Joe, can't have kids. And actually, you know, that's, for me, it's a choice. And I choose not to be a victim. I choose to do something special with what I've got and special with my life and use it proactively rather than spend the rest of my life caught up in this cycle of unhappiness. As a victim, you mm. are incredibly unhappy. Um and you can stay unhappy for a long time. You have to choose. You have to choose to make the decision to move on. And I think that's certainly what I did was, you know, get to a point where it was like, I don't want my life to be like this. I don't want to, I don't want to feel as if every time I go into a room, I'm not valuable. And therefore I have to find something valuable for me. I have to find value in me. And that's what I've done. You know, I see and hear people right who stay as victims. And and perhaps some of that is because they can't see the value in themselves or the value in what they're doing. When I left my job at the college, right, I had no job to go to, but I knew that I had to move on. Um, And for me, it was very much about, it was more painful to stay somewhere and stay being someone who I wasn't congruent with than it was to move on. And I think that's the Mm. difference with, with victims is, I think you can become so comfortable being that victim, even though it's the worst thing in the world and the circumstances are dreadful, it's still a comfortable place to be. Whereas if you choose to move away from that, then that's a really frightening place to be. If you, you know, particularly if you don't know what you're doing or where you're going. And I think that's why a lot of people stay, stay in that victim mentality because it's safe, because they can identify with themselves. Whereas Mm. you have to have the courage to move on. You have to get to a point, right, where you can let go of who you, of, you can let go of the loss or the person who you thought you were meant to be, right, and move closer to the person who you need to become. I suppose that's the challenge. For me, 
for me, perhaps the letting go, I'm not saying was easier, but the reality was that the door was very firmly shut. You know, yes, I could have, I could have fostered, I could have adopted, right, but I wanted, I wanted a piece of me and my husband, right, that was what was important. Yeah. I had to let go of the the attachment that, that having children meant I was valuable. I had to let that go and just leave yeah. that and move forward. Yeah. I, I had to look at myself and look at the things that I brought to the table and how I was valuable. I had to focus on those things and, mm. and do more of those things than focus on mm. the lack of value, the lack of perceived value that I had with not being able to have children. So right? You have to do something. So I started volunteering. I started going out more in company with other women. That was incredibly hard. You know, there were moments where I would go to the Mm. toilet, I'd go to the toilet and I'd be in tears in the toilet because it was so difficult, particularly when, particularly when obviously when you're in a, a group of women and it's like, oh, these are my children. These are my children. How many children have you got, Joe? I think the hardest thing for me at that point, right, Sarah, was, was whenever, because what would have, could have easily happened for me is and did sometimes is, you'd say to women, you know, you'd be in groups and people would say, so how many children have you got? And I'd say, I don't have I don't have any of I don't have any of my own children. Have I've got two stepchildren who I love dearly, but and they were like, all oh, right, okay, stepchildren. Have you got your own? And I'm like, no, I don't. Um, and the hardest thing about that, right, was looking at women, looking into women's eyes and seeing the sympathy in their eyes because of what I couldn't have. I had to park that and just think. At the end of the day. I'm lucky to have what I have and that's really okay with me I'm okay with that and I think you have to get to a Mm. point where you're okay with the circumstances and taking action helped Mm. me to do that because then it I started to find my value in some of the things that I did you know so I started to help young people I started to get really good feedback around that and then that made me feel better about myself and made me feel worthwhile and that's what has helped me to kind of do this transition life is not perfect right life is not easy I think that victim kind of victim to agent I think transition is a muscle right and it's a muscle that you've got to continually exercise because otherwise you kind of keep coming back have to you have to keep moving forward and exercising that so joe you talk you talk now that you're in your new business you are helping young people think about their identity and living being leaders living life in their own terms which is lovely what are you noticing about them it's such a fantastic question because one of the things that I, off the back of what we're doing with the farm, I'm just about to have my book published. Because of this, the challenge that I had around talking personally about what had happened, about my story, right, and how... Because in some sense, you know... Um, when we when we're victims right we lose things from ourselves you know and one of those things is around the identity side because of that sense of loss i couldn't articulate that particular story in an adult way so i wrote a child's book about it which is mm. about to be published it's it's a book that's based around a farm sweet haven home which is a rehabilitation um, farm in Cumbria it tells the the stories and the issues that young people have like identity like weight and it does it through the eyes of animals I think what I've really realized is I went through this at the age of like say 30 to 40 right 
I work with young people nowadays and I see them now in their youth, right? You know, be it between the ages of say, you know, 18 to um 26 and I see them going through the same challenges that I've gone through that mm-hmm. I don't know who I am and and how do I make sense mm-hmm. of who I am and what I'm good at and so what I've tried to do Sarah with the work I do is I do a little bit of leadership profiling so I help young people to find out what they're naturally good at so that mm. we give them their identity back you know because this thing this whole thing about attachment is that we attach meaning to certain things. We attach meaning to ourselves. You know, so when our parents say to us, well, I think you need to be an engineer, you know, or I think you need to do this in your life, right? There's, you know, these young people attach meaning to these things. So when they don't achieve them or they don't want to do them, it's they, they have these massive kind of situations in their lives where it's like, well, I should be doing this, but actually it doesn't feel right for me to be doing that. Um, So... I help them to get their confidence back to say, actually, this is who you are and this is what you can do and help them to deal with that, letting go of that attachment and that actually the only person that they have to be in their lives is themselves and no one else. And I've got an example of that, actually. I've worked over the last um, probably year with a young person who works in quite an established engineering organisation. And this young person's been really, really successful, you know, very young, 28-year-old, done really well for themselves, but felt the need, right, because they were managing older people to um, to kind of adopt this persona, to become someone who they're not, right? And mm. so we've worked over the last kind of year to, to help them to realise that actually the only person that they need to be is themselves. So it's almost like you see this butterfly effect of this young person, right, who has gone from being someone who actually they're not and they're not really very comfortable with and it's exhausting and they don't feel congruent with themselves to now this beautiful young person, right, who is absolutely and utterly comfortable in their own skin, in what they do, in the way that they are and the difference with that right Sarah is when because they will when they experience a challenge in their life right when they you know um have a trauma or when something doesn't go right they're not hiding or coming from a, a place of not themselves because they have a confidence in who they are what they do who they are And they know that as long as they've got themselves and as long as they're happy with who they are at the heart of everything, then they can pretty much cope with anything. And I think that's probably one of the learnings, the real insights for me is around, you know, I suspect if we look at individuals or victims who are unable to become agents, it's because they're unwilling or unable, right, to actually see themselves and to become themselves, and, you know, it's because they're still attached to the person who they thought they should be or the situation that they thought mm. they were in. So for me, it's amazing to see these young people really, really flourish, really come out of themselves, but be themselves, you know, and be accepted for who they actually are as individuals. Um, so that's what, for me, mm. is the beauty about kind of the work that I do is just mm. seeing people be comfortable being themselves. We coach a lot of people, obviously, 
in the work and organisational context. A lot of big things happen to people in a work context, like their budgets are taken away from them or changes in their teams uh, suddenly shrink to half and they've got to give their resource you know, to another uh, leader in the organization. And I think this will resonate with them very much. It's, you know, that that loss of things. I, I, I think you're right, Sarah. And particularly, I think it's very prevalent given the situation that we've just gone through in terms of this, the pandemic. You know, in the last two years, we have lost as a nation so much, right? Um, and so yeah. I see young people in organisations who are now going into environments that they're not comfortable with, they're not familiar with because they've been at home. The whole perception of, of who they are, what they do, what they're meant to do is completely changed, completely changed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And dealing with that can be incredibly difficult. So again, coming mm-hmm. back to my learnings around this, first of all, acknowledge, right, that actually things are different. Acknowledge that something has happened. Acknowledge that mm. you're going to have to work differently or you're going to have to do something different. Mm. And often, you know, mm. I've seen my experience around doing that is uh, that whole acknowledgement piece is really important because usually people will just kind of, they just move on, don't they? Very quickly. It's like, oh yeah, we don't have to think about this. This has just happened. But the point is, you've lost something. So there's a natural progression. Mm. There's a grieving process to a certain degree, or at least there's a Mm. process to go through to to acknowledge that actually Mm. things have changed. Yeah. And or things need to Mm. change. Mm. And I think that's the first thing is, is taking the time to acknowledge that things have changed and something needs to be done differently. Right. The other side of it is actually understand and trying to pick out what is it about that particular situation, right, that you've been attached to that's uncomfortable. Looking Mm. into the situation and understanding what is it that you've lost? Is it, have you lost the fact that, is it, are you uncomfortable about working in the office now? Because Mm. there's a sense of you've lost your freedom now from being able to stay at home and work at home. I see a lot of young people who found benefit in working from home, but it's finding out to what's the attachment? What is it about the staying at home that they like, right? And that if they come back into the office, there'll be a sense of loss. They'll have to give up something. And that could Mm. be family, Mm. uh, you know, being around family, friends, could be just not wanting to come into the office and exploring that it's it's unpicking that and understanding what is it right what is that Mm. attachment Mm. that's preventing them from moving forward and then obviously it's about then accepting right that you have got that um that perhaps coming back into the office is not going to be easy it's not going to be some it's not going to be something that that you're going to want to do but it's something that perhaps is necessary and then the final stage, right, is then doing something about that. Uh, we've spoke recently with people who are trying to almost transition back into the office, right, and it, we've gone back to a hybrid approach. So some people, instead of coming full-time back to the office, right, have recognised that actually they can do a hybrid approach and do a little bit of work at home and a little bit of work in the office. And it's having those conversations, it's talking through that um, and, and getting acceptance and taking action that then moves them on, as opposed to some individuals who would just stay at home and then refuse to come into the office. You know, that's that's the victim side. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to engage with you. I'm comfortable where I'm at. I'm not going to um, be forced to come into the office. Part of that victim to agent is working through that, coming to a point where you can accept 
the difference, take yeah. action whilst you're but doing create that. new, yeah. some new vision picture uh, of what hybrid working might look like. I mean, I, and I love the bit that you talk about about the antidote being being yourself with new, you know, with other people, being yourself, and that resonates with my journey so much. You know, when I started being a consultant, or I had a really great leader you know in in my life that I thought that is was my picture of a leader yeah I'm going back 20 years this is this is my this is what a leader should look like and probably spent years trying to emulate yeah and and not achieving it of course because I wasn't that person and so you can be then oh I'm not ever going to be a leader um I don't think you know and but it's not until you find your own strengths and who you really are and what is the leader I want to be um, you know, so it resonates so much. I can see you nodding too. It's that that's mm. absolutely because yeah. actually you're attached to something or someone who you're not meant to be, um, mm. and that's very much mm. my learning. I was trying to be someone, or I thought I had to be someone, actually that I didn't have to be. And the other piece yeah. that's incredibly important, right, is the acceptance because you have to, you know. Another example I've got here is for years and years, people have always said that I have been quite quirky, right? Because I'm very bold, I speak my mind. And I used to take that as a negative. And it was drilled into me in organisations. And this sometimes happens in organisations. I was forced to conform. I was forced to conform Mm. to something that someone thought I should be. And actually, right, I was Mm -hmm. never going to be that person. Part of the agency side is having the courage to stand up and say, this is who I am and this is who I'm meant to be. Yeah. And if you don't like me, yeah. that's really all right. But I like me for being yeah. who I am and I'm comfortable with that. That for me is the final piece of the, the transition to agent is being able to be who you are and be comfortable. And then mm. people who then take that and move past that into the thriving stage, just absolutely knock it out the ballpark because people accept them for who they are they accept themselves and I think that's where there is no fear there's no attachment then then it's just about being in flow about being who you're meant to be Joe, we've got one final question but really thank you for telling that courageous story again and again which I'm sure only helps you also but um I'm uh and the wonderful things that you're doing to support others and really put that story to great use. I mean, it's just superb. I won't mention the 17 kids that you now have, and I'm sure you're kept very busy, but I am, I'm kind of on the edge of my seat about what the next chapter is. It, you, you found a power within you that actually everybody has yet very little people know it and use it. So I think you've given us, you know, your four points are really um practical really and very easy to put into progress so really thank you so much for telling the story um there's one final question that we ask everybody which is uh we're obviously in the field of breakthroughs and and high ambitions and you know just wondered if there's anything perhaps not related to you but um is a person or an organization or non-profit that is giving you hope at the moment for some great breakthroughs in the world? I mean, one particular organisation that um, continues to inspire me in terms of the work that they do is the work done by the Samaritans. And 
when I say it's an organisation that, that I feel personally affected by is because if I go back, Sarah, to 2011, 2012, right, when I was trying to have a baby, right, it's it was an organisation that I didn't particularly connect with. I connected with a, a similar organisation, but I see the work that they've done and particularly the work over the last two years around the pandemic. And I think that I see so many young people lack confidence whose social skills are not at the level where they can talk through their difficulties or they'd find it difficult to talk through these challenges. And I see the work that organisations like Samaritans are doing right to try and bridge that gap and work with young people Mm. and encourage them to talk through some of the challenges that they've got. I think we need to do more work with young people around that. They do a lot of work around going into kind of, you know, organisations and universities and things like that to engage young people because, you know, often we don't find out about it until it's too late. I know, you know, a number of um, situations I've come across is it's people who we would never have ever considered would have ever thought about ending their lives have done that for me Mm. the work that Samaritans does to try and to to encourage to engage young people to talk through their difficulties and to share their problems is something that inspires me because again it's something that I didn't necessarily use or have and it would have been really beneficial if I'm honest you know having an independent person who who was non-judgmental to talk through some of the difficulties mm. that I was going through would have been incredibly helpful. Mm. And I think we need organisations who can listen more and open the door yeah. to young people to encourage them to be able to talk about the problems more. And I think that's what Samaritans does and continues to do. So for yeah. me, they are an organisation who inspire me. No, and thank you for bringing that, you know, age-old organisation really back to the forefront of our minds, um, particularly in the context of of this shift. Thank you, Joe, for joining us again. Um, and it's been great to meet you and chat to you. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. Um, and you've made it really easy for me. So huge thank you for that. Really inspiring conversation there with Joe. Since our interview, Joe has gone on to grow her business immensely and working with such a cross section of people, bringing this mindset alive to really help others get back to their ambitions. To make this shift, we need to understand more closely that actually each of us are a walking set of expectations. By this, I mean we all hold different expectations about what a good day at work is like. Imagine in our hybrid working, some love an empty office, access to all the facilities with little interruptions and quiet, and for some we only go in to see people, otherwise what's the point? This is therefore why different people can go through exactly the same circumstances and react and respond to them in completely different ways. This happens often with siblings with the same upbringing, but different memories or impacts. So we have a choice, perhaps, in how we respond, the polar opposites being the victim or the agent. Joe talked about that, in fact. The response is really the reaction to the conditions of the circumstance. Our personal perceptions and value that we place on something creates a set of conditions or criteria for how things should be. Hmm, when I hear the phrase how things should be, it's always a red flag for that reaction that that could go either way from that point. Down into frustration and whose fault or the agent appears with astounding acceptance of the change 
and new possibilities to keep moving things positively forwards. So this is about our personal relationship to circumstances and ambition, suggesting we, you and me, are at the source of this choice. Again, as we have discussed in previous podcasts, the meaning we attach to events that occur start to set our perception of what is true and not true, unchangeable even, diminishing the possibility of the ambition being realised. But Joe, not being able to have children meant she wasn't in control of her own life. Something had been taken away from her, the choice to have children or not, her right as a woman. Now, a lot of us, if not all of us, would have had a similar reaction as Joe did. But what else in your life, on your ambition pathway, are circumstances you wish you didn't have to deal with? Perhaps deep down, you know you are reacting as the victim. Too many demands, not getting all the communication you need. Perhaps the money is no longer available to you or people not doing what they said they would do. So when something interrupts our ambitions, number one, what have you attached to those circumstances? What shoulds come into your mind that you have attached? What's the value you have placed that is now lost or stolen from you? For me, I like to do things in collaboration. This is what I value. So when things move without me knowing or get decided for me, this is when my choice shows up, victim or agent. For some, this can be something like achieving something without any mistakes or failures. No bumps or surprises, for example. Some value perfection, being in control, looking good. For others, it can be a fixation on trying to get somewhere by a certain time, maybe a particular milestone in a project you need to achieve resulting in pushing or fixing problems for people. The expectation that we will hit that goal by the end of the month is actually the cause of the delay itself, the pushing, the anxiousness, the determination. For others, again, it's about being right, like teenagers, where it doesn't matter what you say, they will say the opposite. Looking at your unique relationship, those attachments to your circumstance, what do you say that means? And is it true? So the next step, step two, is to accept the new circumstance as quickly as possible, letting go. We have a declaration we use in our breakthrough work called, there is no way things should be. They just are that way. Or another is people are perfect the way they are. These declarations remind us of the choice we have and allow us to pivot quickly between one choice of being victim or another choice of being the agent. Letting go of the meaning, recognising that this is something you are adding, most through choice. Letting go of the control we assume we have on things when actually we have very little control, aside our own reaction. I remember reading that the human reaction anger only actually lasts for 90 seconds. It's the remuneration and internal and external dialogue that maintains the anger for longer or if you like, keeps relighting the anger reaction for another 90 seconds and another. So the speed you can accept the circumstance, the facts are just the facts. There is no way things should be. People are perfect the way they are. Now, where do we go from here? These practices of attachment and acceptance I am hearing and using more and more in my coaching with leaders and ambitious people. The need to do the inner work to get ourselves, if you like, out of the way of the bold actions we could be taking to achieve much, much more. 
In football, I am a fan and definitely not an expert. The commentators talk about a clinical finish. That was a very clinical goal. It's practised, it's clean, and it takes steps one, two, and three. The same here. This is your practice for the next few weeks ahead. The process is clinical. Number one, aware of your position, relationship to what's going on. Pay attention to that little voice inside your head. Number two, what are you attached to? What's the assumption or the truth? Number three, accept the new circumstance or situation by pivoting with, there is no way things should be. Then what Joe gave us here, the next step. Number four, being yourself. This is where the agent awakens. This is the tough part. If you allow the choice of the victim to play, when in this mindset, we are unable to see ourselves or be ourselves. So challenge yourself, get a good friend, a coach, a colleague to ask these questions. Who am I in the matter? What do I really want? Where is my value in what we are achieving? If I have nothing to protect or defend, no saber-toothed tiger at my door to survive. And five, building resilience. From being yourself and having value in yourself, running this process often builds confidence that we can handle anything and start to rely on ourselves once more. Thanks, Joe, for your wisdom on this subject and sharing such a personal journey with us. Thanks for listening. As always, we hope what we've discussed here starts you thinking about unleashing your own ambitions. And we'd love to hear your stories, personal aha moments and reflections, as well as answer your questions. To do this, email us at ambition at achievebreakthrough.com. If you can, please give us a five-star review to help others, perhaps someone with a big unrealized ambition, find us. Looking forward to the next episode, where we'll explore the practice of embracing setbacks and failure to ensure that as time goes on, we don't allow our ambitious goals to shrink, fade or compromise. We have another extraordinary guest who is a senior leader in a top pharmaceutical company from the research and development part of the organisation who helps us really explore around so much failure how to nurture innovation. It was a great interview, so don't forget to press follow to catch our previous and future episodes. See you next time.